Hello and welcome to another edition of the Daily Objective. Today we're going to be talking about a case that probably everyone in the Western world has heard of, the, the currently pending uh, Supreme Court case on abortion rights that comes from a Mississippi statute that's being challenged. Uh, arguments were heard last week uh, in front of the Supreme Court arguing both for and against a law that in effect uh, made all abortions after 15 weeks unlawful. Uh, in Mississippi. And that could have the effect of overturning a now almost 50-year-old precedent of Roe versus Wade protecting the very important right uh, of a woman to have an abortion. And given the new configuration of the Supreme Court, uh, President Trump's recent appointments, the overturning of Roe versus Wade is now a very serious possibility that we have to uh, consider. And I'm fortunate to have with me, of course, as so often is familiar uh, to this audience, Mark Pellegrino. Um, and we all are also privileged to be joined with that most outstanding of communicators, also familiar with this audience, Mr. Don Watkins. So welcome, gentlemen. Good to see you, James. You know, um, we are on the verge, I think, or at least we're getting very close to it, of at least a major step back uh, in the in the Supreme Court's protection, which has been reasonably consistent in, 19, in not famous 1972 case, Roe versus Wade, had broken it up into trimesters of the nine months of pregnancy. The first trimester, a woman had an absolute right. Uh, the state has a right to regulate uh, for a woman's health during the second, and the fetus's right only kicks in in the third trimester, using the basic idea of viability, but with a strict trimester rule. In the 1992 case, the famous Casey case before the Supreme Court, they stepped back, and instead of it being a fundamental right that had to face strict scrutiny, it's now an undue burden on abortion test, and viability is the test which can now be, you know, as uh, early as, uh, wow, about 15, 16 weeks of pregnancy. And so it is at that point that Mississippi says, let's make it 15 weeks and see where the Supreme Court goes with that. There is currently also pending a Texas law that's being challenged in the Supreme Court, which makes it in effect could be as low as six weeks because it, con it connects it to the fetal heartbeat. Both of these laws, in my view, are, are offensive to a, in my view, a woman has a right to evict anyone from her body at any moment, and that a human being doesn't really get legal rights until they get separated from the woman. Um, now, I'm not saying there are borderline cases, you know, in, in the ninth month and stuff, but to me, the rights issue is a pretty straightforward one. Um, but the Supreme Court, I think, is on the verge right now of changing the law. And I just wonder how you guys react to that. I mean, two of the smartest guys I know. So what do you think, Don? Well, I think, you know, if we step back and there's kind of three issues that have to be separated. So one is the legal issues. And, you know, we can talk about kind of the legal foundation of Roe versus Wade. Then there's the political issue. We could put it the rights issue, which is what should the right government policy be? And then there's a moral issue, which is there may be cases where abortion, in our judgment, should be legal, but that we would regard it as immoral. And you know, if abortion was made illegal, I think we would be saying that there's plenty of moral cases of abortion that were being banned. And so I think the, the core issue to get clear on is the political issue. And as you suggested, James, the, the fact is that what rights are supposed to do are govern the ability of individuals to live their lives in a society, which means that 
we have to be able to deal with one another voluntarily. And if we can't reach a voluntary agreement, go our separate ways. And so that presupposes as a fundamental fact that you can go your separate ways, that there's distinct individuals. And what abortion, anti-abortion laws do is they basically give something that's within and dependent on a woman rights that supersede her ability to pursue her happiness. And so that's kind of the fundamental flaw or the fundamental problem in anybody claiming the so-called right of the unborn. And as you say, there's borderline cases in the sense of I'm much more sympathetic to somebody who says, look, the last trimester, you know, uh, or the last month of the last trimester, what are we going to do about that? But what I have no sympathy with, and certainly Ayn Rand had no sympathy with, is if you're talking in the early stages of early stages of a pregnancy, definitely in the first 15 weeks uh, at minimum, um, but pr probably up till 24 weeks or so, the idea that something that is perceptually not anything like a human being, that this has rights and that the woman's going to be sacrificed to the those alleged rights, I think is really barbaric, really monstrous. And anybody who claims to be pro-life and is going to eviscerate the rights of women in that way, I think has no right to the claim of that title. All right. let, me, let me ask you a question, James. Is, is the Supreme Court now focusing on the right things? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like the argument has been focused on the right things in the past. And now they seem to be focused, if, I'm, if, I, if I understand the arguments correctly, on whether they should follow precedent, whether the Supreme Court has the, has the jurisdiction to interfere with state law or not. Um, this seems to all be a distraction from the fundamental uh, core ideas that you guys are talking about, or what, what rights are when they begin um, for a human being, what their purpose are in society. Yeah, the Supreme Court's all off on the wrong track, and the concepts they're using are not the concepts that are meaningful. Don did a far better job of locating the relevant moral and legal uh, concepts uh, at play here than the Supreme Court certainly has. Uh, but that is endemic to the Supreme Court. You know, after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, and the intent of the 14th Amendment was to impose all of the limitations on the federal government all of, and it recognized all of the rights that were protected in the Bill of Rights, uh, protecting us from the federal government to against the states. But the Supreme Court quickly, you know, back in the 130 years ago, 140 years ago, quickly got rid of that and said, no, 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 no. States can go their own way and do their own things. And it's only been through sort of legal technicalities overusing the due process clause, and this is technical legal stuff, uh, that they have slowly reintroduced the idea of the Bill of Rights being enforced against the states. Through most of the 20th century, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all that got Im imposed against the states so that the states can't impose censorship or establish religion, that sort of thing. Uh, in the case of, uh, uh, for example, the birth control and abortion decisions, a very interesting uh, thing happened. The Supreme Court used the Ninth Amendment on a numerous, at least one of the justices in the birth control decision uh, in the Griswold case used the Ninth Amendment of unenumerated rights uh, to uh, uh, find this right to privacy, a fundamental right which really does underlie and undergird the big ideas behind the, the 
Bill of Rights. But as I say, the Supreme Court uh, shies away from reading the those big, bold statements about individual liberty in their proper context. And Tom Bowden recently had a, a really great post. What's at risk and at stake here with Roe versus Wade is whether the Supreme Court will continue to recognize a broad concept of liberty that includes un specifically unenumerated rights if they are fundamental to individual liberty. Um, I think that's what's at stake. The Supreme Court is looking at this all wrong. Instead of looking at the concepts like Don was, does this being have independent existence or is it dependent on this woman? Um, you know, what, what is the status of a fetus inside of a woman uh, as such, as such? And then what are the woman's rights? I mean, talk about consequences. I mean, uh, the the going back to a world and we have a well, the political context today is absolutely frightening. We have over a dozen states that have uh, anti-abortion trigger laws, and there are several more states that have abortion laws just in past waiting to see if they'll be validated by the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Half the states in the union could have uh, laws against abortion should the United States Supreme Court overturn Roe. So it's very, very important what they're do, doing here. But in no case, you know, and I think there are some, it's hard to predict some of these justices. Roberts has tried to indicate, I think, a compromise through his questions that I could detect uh, during the arguments. I'm not sure where Alito and Gorsuch may fall out. They may be willing to compromise in some way, but there's a solid, you know, you got new Amy Coney Barrett and you've got uh, uh, Kavanaugh and you've got uh, 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 Clarence Thomas, and they're going to be solidly against uh, Roe. The liberals will join in in a concurrence if they can, if there's some compromise that Roberts can work out with another one of the conservatives. But that's what literally that's what this is all hinging on. Wow. Unfortunately. What do you think, Don? I, mean, I think one really striking thing. So you asked about sort of the, the problems in their analysis. And so one major philosophic one, because they do talk about in, in the abortion cases, the issue of rights. But rights are presented always as a balancing act. So we have to balance the rights of the mother, the rights of the unborn. It's not usually put as the rights, but the interests of the government and kind of balancing those. But that is all wrong. Like from the objectivist perspective on things, rights are precisely what allow us to get rid of these kinds of conflicts so that we can live in a society. And so if you see a conflict of rights, you know that you're thinking about it all in the wrong way. And that is, I think, doubles down on this point that rights can't apply to the unborn, because there's an inherent conflict there, that there's no way to resolve a conflict between a woman who wants to control her body, control her fate and life, and decide what to do with her body, and somebody telling her, no, you have to carry a pregnancy to term. And so we're only dealing with rights once we're dealing with distinct individuals. And so I think the the what we've really seen in the legal arguments, it's hard to be sympathetic to either side, because the legal reasoning seems so bad. I mean, the I haven't read the full opinion in the original Roe case, but I think we touched on it, uh, it, you know, it was founded in a right, but the right was the right to privacy, which is really bizarre when you think about, well, like if I, you know, kill somebody in my cellar and the police <laughs> come like knocking, like, are they destroying my right to privacy? Uh, it, the right to privacy presupposes that you have a right to be doing what you're engaged in doing. And so the fundamental question is, is this an individual human being? with rights that need to be protected. And so um, I'm, I'm concerned about the, 
I don't have any optimism about the legal reasoning that's going into it. And neither did Ayn Rand when she endorsed Roe. She explicitly said that it's kind of dubious legal reasoning, but we should cheer the outcome of it. But she recognized that that always, you know, makes it precarious. If we're not explicitly in the principle, if we don't get, ex get the explicit principle right, there's always this ability to undermine it. And so I think we're going to see some undermining. And the question is, how bad is it going to be? One of the most shocking moments for me in law school, studying constitutional rights, my law school professor, it's almost like day one uh, in constitutional law, who here thinks that individual rights and the Bill of Rights are absolutes? I was the one person in class yeah. who raised my hand. And, you know, the truth is that if we went by the, the original language and intent, interestingly, of, of the things like the 14th Amendment, that would be more the perspective. These are fundamental. Congress shall make no law, dot, 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 is how the Bill of Rights begins. And that sounds pretty absolute to me. Um, and they used big, broad, conceptual language that incorporated these things. The 14th Amendment was meant to include Get this, the authors, the drafters of the 14th Amendment back, you know, 150 years ago were saying that your fundamental rights include the right to get a job, voluntarily, of course, to employ people, of course, to buy and sell, to own property, to sue and be sued uh, in court, that you're to have children, get married. Your fundamental rights included every aspect of your life, and they meant to include a protection of all of our liberties in a broad, broad way. And it's the Supreme Court that has put in this balancing act. And day one, my constitutional law professor said exactly what Don did. There are no absolutes. It's a balancing test. We have to balance these people's interests versus these people's interests. That is fundamentally corrupt, fundamentally corrupt and fundamentally opposed to actually the ideological structure of our original Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment that was passed after the Civil, Civil War. That is utterly corrupt way of looking at it, uh, agreed. And so because of the backdoor way in which the Supreme Court has put this in, it is an incredibly strained uh, defense of it. I think that in the Constitution, and here I would point to legal scholars such as the late Bernard Segan or uh, Professor Randy Barnett's uh, most recent book on the 14th Amendment, or the philosophical work of uh, Professor Tara Smith. I think there are ways in which we can understand the United States Constitution protects individual liberty as such until and unless there's someone else's rights involved. And I think there are better philosophical approaches the Supreme Court could take with existing constitutional language that could preserve a fundamental right to abortion in a woman as an expression of her fundamental right to liberty. Do you think the do you think the only real solve to this problem is a is a constitutional amendment and would that be possible given the philosophical climate today? I would be terrified at a constitutional amendment today given the political situation today conser the conservatives versus the leftists neither of them have anything remotely resembling the original concept of rights as embodied in our constitution. So I do not think that this is a time for a constitutional convention. I'm not even sure I'd trust any language that would come out of Congress or the states on such an uh, amendment. Uh, as I say, I think the correct course is philosophical education that will lead to proper legal theory and legal education so that the existing constitution can be found to protect the broadest liberty interest of individuals. And I think it can be done. Yeah, I mean, I think... 
So one one thing that makes this issue tricky is that um so I deal a lot with communication and unfortunately there you know it's very easy for the anti-abortionists to take the moral high ground in this issue and one of the reasons that it's easy is that they're able to frame it as this prof- that we're on the side of life and you're kind of on well I'm going to murder life because it's inconvenient for me and part of what <clears throat> goes into it is a trivialization of happiness. So if you think, what is the right to abortion safeguarding? People actually feel much more comfortable when they're able to defend it on like the um, life of the mother and the health danger to her. And certainly there's no question that anti-abortion laws make the world more dangerous for women. But the fact that their happiness and specifically their sexual happiness is not treated as a crucial value that has to be protected, it really... I think reveals the hollowness and emptiness of the so-called reverence for life of the anti-abortionists because life does not mean. So remember, I mean, the the religious conservatives are the same people who thought, you know, keeping Terry Schiavo's, um, you know, brain dead body, essentially alive, quote, alive, hooked up to machines was some kind of moral uh, endeavor, but no life is life. It's the ability to think, to live, to choose, including um, and to seek out joy and that's really what's being done is in the name of a of a non-life that is a thing that might be alive in a biological sense of cells that are functioning in a certain way. But in terms of a human life where you're an individual creature acting in the world, um, they're wiping out any concern with your ability to pursue values and pursue joy and pursue pleasure in the name of something that's not yet living in the human sense. And that, I think, is the the real travesty. And so that's sort of, I think, when you're thinking about, well, how do we actually, like, how would we persuade people to have a better view on this that then would hopefully get uh, protected by better laws? It's really tapping in to this issue of um, they're not on the side of life if life means something beyond a kind of biological state of cellular activity. And if it really means the ability to flourish. They are thorough religious intrinsicists on the concept of life. If it's a single-celled organism, it's a human being with all the full-fledged rights. As you say, no matter how brain-dead at the other end the vegetable is, there's no no other consideration. That's life. It's where we can't play God, of course. They're willing to play God in their own way, of course. But, of course, they will tell you you can't play God. So it's a thoroughly intrinsicist view of life that has to be protected at all costs, no matter what. I don't realize the cloud they're putting over someone's head. I mean, just think about... uh, you know, the range of great, take Ayn Rand, take Ayn Rand. Could she have written Atlas Shrugged, an introduction to objectivist epistemology, had she chosen to be a mother, for example? No, she made a self-conscious decision that she was going to devote herself to her art and her philosophy. And I, for one, am totally grateful. She had thousands of children of the mind, not of her body. And I think that'll, in the long run, have greater impact on uh, the well-being of the the human species than her uh, reproducing her genes, although she must have had some remarkably smart genes. But uh, there are thousands more examples. I mean, I mean, mean, even even but jumping off of what Don said too, the um, so many of these folks who are who are um, anti-abortion blow off the fact that there there could be long term 
physical issues that a woman has from carrying a child, even if she carries it to term and then gives it up for adoption, uh, the nine months that she's carrying the child are not even considered. The, the time oh. afterwards for physical recuperation. Oh, my, my wife did not want to have a child because she didn't want to go through what it does to her body. Start with <laughs> She wanted a career, of course. And uh, so she had other good reasons. But yeah, look at what it's doing to my body. No way. It's my body. Someone's right. going to force me to carry a, a pregnancy to term and then put me into this terrible situation where I either put the child up for adoption, gosh knows where the child is going then, so you've got this cloud over your head, what you've created, or I ha now have to devote the next you know 20 years of my life to, to this child. Or, and it's, of course, a lifetime concern. So, uh, yeah, they have no concern what they're doing. And that's why I regard this issue as sort of like the military draft. What you're doing is you're affecting a whole person. Well, in the draft, you could be killing them. But no matter what, you're affecting a whole person's life. In effect, you're enslaving the person. Uh, I might make a 13th Amendment, you know, anti-slavery argument against both the draft and the abortion laws. You're saying her life is not her own. Indeed. So, I mean, I've, I've had debates with guys like uh, uh, Zuby Music on, on this. He He's the exact opposite of us. Or I was, I was holding the individuation argument as the standard. He didn't think, uh, he thought a, a woman was basically a vessel for the pregnancy from the moment of conception. Obviously, it's, it's informed by a religious intrinsicist point of view. Don, what's the solution to this? I mean, we, we know the, the, the Supreme Court's going to flounder on this issue, but how can we as objectivists change the culture? I mean, I tried to indicate part of it is that you want, so in every debate, it's what are the alternatives? And, the, and so if the alternatives are something like, life versus choice that's a really crappy kind of alternative um from somebody who values the rights of women and their ability to control their bodies and control their sexual life um and so i think i don't have the kind of sexiest framing for it or the the best like terminology for it yet but i really think it is i mean what what um jim was just touching on like the idea of slavery and so on you want to get it to that level where it's clear cut that, you know, this is not um, that the good is on the side of a, a woman's right to control what happens to her body. And that what's being um, enforced by the anti-abortionists is really corrupt. And it's switching that framing that I think is the real crux and key to the issue. Uh, but it's hard to do because you, you can't just have five sentences to explain it. You have to be able to encapsulate it in both a powerful but also persuasive way. So I think it's working to figure out exactly how to do that. But at the end of the day, no framing is going to completely overcome the fact that the culture is deeply religious in many parts of the country. And part of the religion is not valuing human life and happiness. And, uh, and, and so long as you have that, it becomes tricky. So um, so I have some super chats here that I think we should get to. One from I, Enric Teller. I hope I'm pronouncing that right for $4.99. Thank you, Enric. The point of viability should be considered without technological support like an incubator. What do you guys think of that? So it, what he's suggesting is that we think of viability in the old-fashioned terms, not in terms of the latest technology, because technology has uh, really dramatically pushed back viability. You know, it used to be that it's at seven or eight months, they would, you know, you put them in an incubator and maybe they'll survive. Now it's like six months, maybe five months at some point where they can uh, save the fetus. 
Uh, should that be the test, their ability to save the fetus? Uh, no, that obviously should not be the test, but uh, I don't think viability is the legal test either. Uh, viability is simply the ability, if we were to take steps to remove the baby in a certain way and make sure it's you know, blue incubators and whatnot, uh, even if it were eight months and the baby comes out, you know, the baby might come out okay, that's still not the legal test for me. That's still not an objective legal test at all. Um, no. It's okay, not so a balancing act, like Don says, between the fetus and the woman until the fetus becomes an independent being, in my mind. Right. you have anything to add to that, Don? No, it's just, I mean, uh, I, I think that's right. That is the question that you have to answer fundamentally is in terms of rights. And at that point, viability is irrele irrelevant, in my view, to defining rights. It might be relevant to assessing morality. I still don't think it, it probably is. I don't think that's the most relevant sort of thing to be taking into account. But um, the only reason to raise viability as an issue is if we're thinking more at the tactical level or like, what should we hope for from the Supreme Court? Because um, certainly it's better if they're, you know, saying that it, the right is sacrosanct before viability. That's better uh, than if they say that there is no right at all that the um, court is protecting. And if they're going to put it in terms of viability, it's better that they do it without technological support than with. But I actually think some of the discussion that took place in the court um, was a little bit better. So I think the way that, um, uh, I forget which justice it was, but there is an issue of, are we really concerned about viability? Or are we concerned with protecting the time required for a woman to make an informed decision? And I think that's actually right. That if it, it, let's say somebody doesn't agree with me that it's, you know, separation of the biological entities. I think that at minimum, the bare minimum, if you're at all humane and you even want a seat at the table should be a woman needs to have the time to realize she got pregnant, to look through her options, to make arrangements. And, and that kind of is um, the more objective and reasonable approach rather than something inherent with, you know, the unborn. It was Gorsuch who was questioning whether viability is a sensible rule and kicks in uh, or not. And once we do that, then haven't we made it subject to whatever technology can do? And a really good line of questioning. And that's what makes the Texas law so pro uh, problematic. It makes the fetal heartbeat the issue. And that can happen at five, six weeks. Wow. And so a woman might not even know she's pregnant mm -hmm. and it becomes illegal for her to terminate the pregnancy after only one month. Uh, she may not even know she's pregnant. Um, you know, you, there's reasons you can miss a period or have a light period and not be pregnant. Uh, so it, that is And how on earth do we impose the obligations of a parent on a woman if it's not her voluntary choice? I mean, the uh, whole point is that it's, it's an obligation of the parent. But once they have discharged their part of the reproductive responsibility, and in a woman's case, that means carrying the baby to term. So, so, so Mary Aline has another super chapter for $10. Thank you, Mary Aline. Is there anyone on the Supreme Court who could be expected to look at abortion in light of individual rights or understand that the unborn can't have rights? Is Clarence Thomas even far from this no, issue? No, the answer huh? there is simply no. There is no justice of the current justice of the United States Supreme Court that I'm confident will rule correctly on the uh, issue of a woman's right to her own life as a basic individual right that conditions this whole issue, no.
No, no, no. Uh, unfortunately, Gorsuch may be the closest to <laughs> something like that. But even Clarence Thomas and uh, other justices who are right, at least on certain issues, are terribly wrong when it comes to the ex expansive nature of the rights that the framers put into the Constitution. These conservatives are looking for every excuse they can to restrict individual liberty, when in fact the framers had a very big, bold, broad concept of individual liberty. Um, Allison Beard has, uh, thank you, Allison, $5. If, if we need a constitutional amendment so women can have abortions without problems, then what does that say about society? I think that's true. Shazbat uh, has one for $49.99. Thank you, Shazbat. The Pixar movie Soul depicts human souls as residing in an otherworldly bureaucracy until they are assigned to and implanted in human infants. I was appalled. Is this idea shared by religion and is it an influence in the anti-abortion movement? Very good question, Shazbat. Well, I definitely think, so I don't, wouldn't say exactly that specifically, but certainly as we've touched on the religious idea that what makes a human being a human being is this kind of mystical implantation of a soul. And um, one way that this comes up subtly, even by <clears throat> secular thinkers who are interested in kind of classical liberal ideas about rights is this idea that rights are just something that we kind of have they're like a feature or characteristic of human beings and kind of implanted in us whereas the objectivist views that rights are moral principles and that they're based on certain facts about human beings and so we can reason about them we don't have to like just intuitively gaze when does right you know when does the soul get implanted when do rights get implanted or something like that no, it's that rights arise in the context of individuals living in a social context and saying, how can they live together and retain their sovereignty and their ability to pursue their happiness independently? And so insofar as we think of rights as something people have rather than as moral principles, we're kind of pushed in this direction of uh, the same kind of thinking that goes into, you know, when does the soul get implanted? It's that same kind of unanswerable question that then... Um, treats rights and the soul as something mystical and really can distort people's thinking, even if they're not explicitly religious on the issue. Um, Kirk Wilcox for $2 says, thank you for amazing content. God, I wish the justices could hear uh, what you, James and Don, what you, Don, are saying, because um, I think it's life-changing if they could just hear it. I agree. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so guys, do you have any, do you, do you have anything to add before we conclude? Cause, um, I have some announcements to, to make, um, here if, if, unless there's other things to add, I think we're at the end of the super chats. Well, I, I think that you're, uh, I think we covered the issue, um, with Don's help morally and with Mild legally pretty, pretty well here. It's a fundamental right. And we are on the verge, on the verge of the Supreme Court, at least pairing it back or eliminating it. And that is a very real possibility. We probably won't get the decision till next year, probably June sometime, uh, which could alter, you know, the Republicans are setting themselves up for a pretty good midterm. That could alter the entire dynamics for them. Come the, the that's the narrow political issue, I know. But what we're looking at more fundamentally is a basic right that women have that could be curtailed or completely eliminated by the middle of next year. Serious business. That's frightening. Don, do you, do you want to add anything in conclusion? Nope, that uh, I think captures my view as well. 
Um, so guys, there's going to be no super, uh, sorry, no uh, clubhouse today. We're all, uh, we all have busy schedules right after this, so we won't be able to do a clubhouse. So we'll miss you there. And uh, this is such a stimulating conversation. I know you guys are want to, going to want to continue it afterwards. 9 p.m. UK time, HBTV with Harry Binswanger, Free Will, A New Theory of Self-Control. 10 p.m. UK time, Method in Madness uh, with Ibis, Larry, and Dr. Uh, uh, Gatte, Ankar Gatte. Um, American Slavery's, as uh, that say, American Slavery's view of human nature. Okay. Uh, and I forgot to mention Jonathan Hogan, Honig gave us uh, $9.99 American dollars. Well, thanks so much, guys, for such a stimulating chat for those insights. Um, I think they were awesome. I, I wish they could be magnified even more so millions upon millions of people can hear them. Nobody says it better than you guys. Um, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Uh, thanks for visiting us on the Daily Objective, and we'll, we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you.